They say that sometimes it's best to start a story right in the middle of the action. So here's climber, writer and poet, Helen Mort. And, and the way that the scale plays tricks on you, doesn't it? With the glaciers, the distance, you think something's quite close and it's actually really, really far away. I found, because um, I hadn't really done anything like this before, I actually found the glacier travel much more intimidating than any of the the mountains and the, the rock climbing. I just remember spending this day, like eight hours, just going, travelling up the glacier through, the, through these crevasses. And it was like you say, it wasn't the... It, it wasn't the danger as such that... that, that a sense of that it, it was it was the scale and the awe and the, just looking down into all the crevasses and them it seeming endless and it just seeming like this this is the only landscape I'll ever experience again this will never it'll never change I'm always going to be crossing I'm just going to be going across here forever and I just cried at the end of the day I remember I remember crying and not really knowing why I was crying just that something about the landscape, as you say, had done that to me. You might be wondering where this is going. Is this a story about a heroic first ascent? The trials, the loose rock, the weather, the apparent failure? No. Maybe it's a story about a more dramatic failure. A broken leg and the epic crawl back to safety, civilization, and normality. It's not that either. This is really a story about impermanence. You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. Before we go any further, I should probably tell you how I came to have the conversations in this episode. If you map out the stories we've told on Factor 2 over the past three years, you'll pick out an obvious trend. They're mostly about men, usually young men at the time of the story they're telling. The tales are high-risk adventures, and the protagonists confess that they couldn't imagine doing the same thing today. But they idolise the freedom and the appetite for adventure and danger that their former selves possessed. And they eulogise themselves and their peers. It's a well-trodden path in storytelling, and these sorts of tales fit perfectly. Take an imperfect hero, overambitious, naive, place them in a situation of peril. See them through the trials until they emerge victorious or at least in a defeat that seems glorious in some way. I guess I wondered, would these stories be the same if they were led by women? You might notice that the women I've interviewed don't necessarily talk about themselves in the same terms. They're less prone to eulogising for a start, more likely to talk ideas than people. This is a phenomenon that's documented elsewhere as well. The one common element to all of the stories is me. I've chosen the interviewees and structured the stories according to what interests me. And I've wanted to be one of those men, living right on the edge, understanding fear and danger, and being a hero. So in this episode, I had three questions. Who do we tell stories about? Who do we tell them for? And the key one is, who tells them? I thought Helen Mort might be able to give me an interesting perspective on this. But I also spoke to Anna Fleming another climber and writer. I think, yeah, the climbing culture and language and storytelling is a really helpful way of getting to grips with trad climbing. And trad climbing is my passion, and that's what I absolutely love. 
but it's a really steep learning curve. It's there's all the physicality of it and learning to move with the rock and understanding the rock and the way that it moves. There's also that very precise craft of placing gear and learning how to trust that and building anchors and the partnership of it and the navigation and the route finding, which you don't have on sport climbs because the bolts are there telling you where to go. So with trad, it's a huge, huge new skill to to come to grips with. And I think if, as you get yourself more immersed in the culture of climbing, it makes it much more manageable because you start to learn, you know, the kinds of language and stories and ways of dealing with some of those really strange, difficult situations that can arise. This is a good way of thinking about this episode. The bolts that mark the way are a framework. They allow you to enjoy the movement and put a boundary on one kind of satisfaction, but open the door to another. In stories, what's gone before marks the way. It's a model for the writer, but it's also expectation for the reader. There's something comforting about the anchors and structure of a good story. But if you stick to them too rigidly, then you end up with something formulaic. A blank page, like a blank face, lets you be creative. You're still constrained by the vagaries of the rock or the details of your story. And as British climbers will know all too well, marking the way with a line of bolts isn't as straightforward as it seems. Uh, I should, I guess I should maybe um, preface what I say with, because um, it is relevant, I think, in, in terms of thinking about who has the right to tell stories, because that's something that I'm really interested in in my life as a, a fiction writer as well. Um, and whenever I get interviewed about anything to do with climbing primarily, I always feel like a fraud and I always feel like I have to start off by saying, but I'm not a proper climber. I'm not very good. I just go out for fun. I don't do anything noteworthy at all or even particularly dangerous. And it's taken me quite a long time to believe and believe quite passionately now, I think, that those experiences are worth sharing and that those 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 things are valid to talk about as well because they're part of a lot of people's experience of um of, of what it is to climb and why they they love climbing um i i suppose i grew up my my first encounter with climbing was through literature um it was it well it was a combination of going to Scotland all the time from when I was a kid and doing loads of Munros with my dad and becoming ob- obsessed with Scottish Munros and about being out in the mountains and at the same time devouring all these classic texts from my bedroom like stuff like The White Spider that was one of the first books I read and, and stuff like W.H. Um, Murray and uh, Touching the Void and John Krakauer's account of um, the terrible events on Everest. So it was all heroic slash disaster narratives, epic stories of adventure, and all by men. I think the only book that I read in that time that I, rem- I remember my dad um, giving this book to me deliberately because it was a it was Julie Tullis's book, and he was like, "I think you should read this because this is a this is." This is a woman. Um, and so I 
I, I, I grew up with those those kinds of narratives that you're talking about, I think, of a certain time of life and a certain, maybe, um, yeah, I thought that's what climbing was. It was those stories. Yeah, there definitely aren't as many stories like that by women. And, you know, that's one of the things that if I walk into, say, Waterstones and go to the mountaineering section, there's, you know, I'll maybe... If I, on a good day, I might find one or two books by women there, but typically within the sort of mainstream popular fiction or writing about mountaineering, it's, it's so male dominated. Do you think that's because historically more men have been involved in it? Or? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the past, like obviously there are plenty of exceptions and, and lots of amazing women who have done stuff in the hills and it hasn't been written about but also you know statistically speaking a lot fewer women have gone up to those places and and done those extremes and so naturally the balance of the books is going to be different it's an interesting question I mean I think like for me becoming a climber and writing about climbing yeah those those I don't know narrative structures I don't think are as deeply embedded for me because I've never really I never grew up reading those stories so I didn't you know read all those tales of people falling off mountains and you know that kind of mountain horror genre and you know (laughs) which is mountain horror it is though isn't it you think all the all the big stories that stories that people who are non-climbers might have read it would be touching the void or the white spider or uh, I don't know even maybe Doug Scott crawling down the ogre. It's all really it, it's all tales of men doing stuff where you're like, what? Why would you do this? This yeah, is insane. Yeah, and part of the thrill in reading those tales is that you know they're getting into some horrific situation and it sounds absolutely horrible, and so you're kind of reading it at home, pleased to be sat on the sofa, pleased to be in the warm, and you know, sort of marvelling at, you know, their strength and their bravery and the insanity and how difficult the world can be, some of those stories, um, which, like, is very enjoyable, but it's I don't think it's the whole picture of what climbing can be and what climbing is like for a lot of people. No, no, and I, I guess I there's certain stories that I definitely think, yeah, that influenced what I wanted to do in climbing. Um, and some others that I think influence my general perception of what it could be, but you you, you can't really read the White Spider and think, oh yeah, I want to go and climb the North Face of the Eiger. No, it didn't have that effect on me. No, it's quite an an irrational response to because also I guess it's weird that those stories they don't they're not necessarily particularly moralistic. You don't read them thinking, oh, that's the way it should be done. Yeah, yeah, those sorts of books like the White Spider. I read that for the first time last July um so that's you know after I've been climbing and mountaineering for a good 10 years or so and you know what I got from that book in reading it was just I really enjoyed that perspective on the mountaineering mindset and you know the ways that a person adapts and kind of copes with living on the edge and and that really precise psychology or personality that develops in those really extreme hard situations 
that's what I loved from it. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, that's probably what I got from it. I felt like if I were to put myself in some situations vaguely like that, I would find out aspects of my character that that I that I guess I felt like those would be positive aspects. I'm not sure they necessarily are. Even if what they're doing is troubling, somehow the the kind of stoicism is admirable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, for me, part of what I love about mountaineering and climbing is connecting to that stoicism that's within you. And, you know, there are times in busy modern life when it can feel quite hard to to feel that stoicism. And, and that's something for me that through climbing and mountaineering, I really get that sense of, you know, when things are tough, and and things are really hard and quite extreme I can cope and I can keep going and I won't panic and it's okay and that's yeah a really grounding aspect to think of the humanity of mining and mountaineering I'm really interested in that sense of, of like where you set your ambitions like because I spent a long time thinking that I needed to aspire to be better and to be more of a serious climb to climb harder grades and then actually because I've then kind of stopped for a bit because of having a child I've sort of reconciled myself to the the idea of actually just getting out and enjoying myself and and not putting that pressure on myself. And it's interesting because it's it's a bit of an excuse to say that I've stopped climbing because I've had a baby. Um, I've got out of the habit. The way we think about this stuff and partnerships and relationships and climbing has been really valuably changed by um, Maria Coffey's writing about families and partners of climbers and this idea of where the mountain casts its shadow and who's writing about the people who are at home um worrying about the person who's out there the people who are uh, left behind and i think it's it's sort of really important that that's part of the narrative of climbing that that that, that climbing stories can include non-climbers in them I think it's getting a lot more nuanced, which is good. There's, there's, there's sort of, I felt for a while, like I watched a lot of films where there'd always be a bit where they, they showed the very supportive partner at home with the kids just going, well, yeah, you know, he's off doing this. And usually they climbed a bit themselves, but not to the same level, of course. And just this this kind of, but that was the backdrop. That was the, and, and they, they, they were, they were, only sort of saintly if they gave them the permission to to go and stuff and and actually I think and I say this as someone who feels the 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 urge to to get away and to go out and to climb very strongly myself but there's there's more of a recognition in the stories that there's there's a sort of single-minded selfishness to that impulse as well into the and that actually maybe sometimes they they'd be right to get mad or to be like why are you going you're you're being really selfish because um there is that side to it too and 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 I think again that there was a lot of of stories that read where where it's always kind of like oh you know well 
I didn't want to go, but I had to for this noble cause. And actually now I think... I think it's okay to say sometimes that sometimes there's nothing particularly inherently noble about um, climbing more than if you were going off to race cars around a race. Tr- that, 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 um, but the, but I think that that idea is is persists partly because of the nobility of mountains themselves and that humbling effect and the idea that, 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 that of exploration and that is a, a sort of thing that's important to the human race, um, not just because we like to do those things and it's satisfying for us. I think I'm rambling a bit, but um, there's something important in, in the idea of acknowledging the, the, the difficult stuff that can be around the impulse to go climbing. I think the thing that's interesting to me, though, that I've re- I started thinking about this when I was writing my novel a few years ago. So I was writing a novel um, which partly explores trust in rock climbing and there's a character in the novel one of the main characters is a female climber um called karen and she's she's what i would consider pretty good really good she can climb sort of e7 e8 and um i can't climb things like that not in my wildest dreams um that's such a different world of experience and so i was kind of worried um about how to write that I was like, actually it, it's on, on on the one hand I don't have the technical skills or the um the the, the ability to imagine that level of climbing but actually I realized that the, the, the thing is in part um obviously you can empathize and project your imagination and do research and talk to people that do climb things like that but also everybody knows what it's like to feel that fear that you're talking about and that sense of being at risk even if objectively you're not you're not Alex Honnold climbing um f- f- climbing a route on El Cap and you're not you're not without ropes or you're not in a in in a situation where the consequences could be life-threateningly perilous but fear is an instinct that doesn't recognize that so you can still be terrified halfway up a climb an easy climb on on Burbage and and the fear is real and the experience of feeling on the edge of what you can do it just depends um it's the 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 match between the challenge and your ability and and um you you can have that same sort of thrill and experience I think at, at many different levels um so actually even though the the scale is hugely different and the scale of achievement and the scale of risk there are common features to any kind of climb, I think, or any kind of sense of fear. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a matter of scale, if you see what I mean. Um, so so those, those things that you talk about, that, that you thought that the story, they kind of are still there, I think. Average climbs is such an awful way of describing it. But, you know, the, the vast majority of us who spend a bit of time on a rock or indoors or whatever, bumbling around routes of, of whatever grade that we, we want to push ourselves up to. Um, you know, so many of us have got full-time jobs. We might have families, kids, uh, busy social lives to keep up. And so writing about our climbing experiences is, not necessarily something we've got time to develop. Well, this is something that I encounter quite a lot because 
I am like I'm basically uh, <laughs> I feel out of place in both worlds because I'm not a competent enough climber to to be to, to feel like I, I belong when I'm talking to what I consider real climbers. But at the same time, in I'm a, I think of myself as a writer, a writer who is interested in climbing and the effects that climbing and the places we climb have on us sort of emotionally and psychologically. But when I'm doing my writing and when I'm operating within that world, I forget that, that actually in that context, I'm like an expert on some of these things and that I, I take for granted a level of knowledge um, that actually for me is quite a limited level of knowledge because of the this the sort of type of, of climbing I'm doing. But that actually when you're thinking of an audience that, that doesn't know that, that there's so much that I take for granted. So trying to write about climbing for a general audience and for a literary audience is a really interesting challenge and it makes you think about the universal things and the what what things does it not matter if someone can understand they're, they're going to understand the the kind of intent or the emotion or the the sense of danger or trust or whatever it is but yeah there was loads of stuff when I was writing my novel that I had to justify and explain and, and worry if it was too just about here just about the peak districts and what was too technical and what was what would make sense to people and um so you do end up dramatizing um something that's normally written about in in quite a very accurate way that the point is to make it accurate and obviously those books that we talked about earlier like the stories that I grew up with are about accuracy and about detailing exactly what you did and there's a methodical nature to it as well yeah that's one of the really interesting things about climbing just that sense of exploring what a climbing partnership tells you about other people and how you find out about other people through climbing with them and seeing people in those really intense heightened moments of fear and passion and physicality and when so much is going on and that that can be an interesting thing to write about as well like how you connect and learn and discover and build relationships with other people within those really heightened states. Well that, that's something fascinating isn't it you get that thing where um I've I've noticed um when, when I was climbing a few years ago, I don't, like I say, I'm not really climbing at the moment at all, but um, I would climb with um, this group, really nice group of people um, from Sheffield. And I realised at some point, I was like, I, I feel like I know some of you intimately because I've seen you really afraid and or really angry and panicked. And, and just, we've, we've solved these amazing puzzles together or... Um, got through these amazing puzzles solve is probably the wrong word and yet I don't know very much about your life outside of this context and you don't know very much about mine um and it's because it's a particular kind of intimacy isn't it that you you have in your climbing life it's um it's a particular kind of friendship and it's a real bond and you can feel very close to those people but you don't necessarily have to establish that closeness in the way that you normally would when you meet somebody because it's not verbal a lot of the time it's not you know when you're when you're climbing with other people you really see 
how they cope with fear and and how they deal with that anxiety and you know that's it's so like intuitive your relationship with other people like who to trust and who not to trust and um you know there's the people who maybe belay you and they've got their mind elsewhere and you can just kind of sense in the way that the rope below you is being taken in or not and the levels of chatter that are coming through you can tell whether they're on the ball and with you or not or you know say when you're watching someone else lead and you know there are those people who can get in a real flap and a fluster and and it can really move into this very heightened emotional state where they're cursing and swearing and panicking and everything or you know there are those others who are much more quiet and you just kind of notice a little bit of gear jingling at the back of their harness and you can hear their hand scrabbling into their chalk bag and those are like such small sounds but that is the sound of fear being managed and that is the sound of them and it's such an intense moment while you're sat on the ground not having that intense moment and a few meters away you know some other people are eating an ice cream <laughs> yeah i always think that's mad when you know you could be down huntsman's leap or something and you think this is this crazy environment and it's quite intimidating and you know you're pulling out of the top and it's a bit loose and uh, and you've just been through this sort of hour or more ordeal of getting up this, hopefully a rewarding ordeal. And you get to the top and it's flat and grassy and the ice cream van's just over there. Then you've been in a completely different world for that time. Yeah, it's so surreal that, isn't it? Like there's been a few moments where I've topped out of climbs, you know, that have been like, yeah, you've gone into that very intense climbing world and you top out in what I feel like a suddenly fancy dress of helmet, harness, all my gear, the ropes, and I feel completely ridiculous and and then yeah there's other people just milling around like say topping out on the top of great gable and and they're all just you know having a nice stroll and and there you are and i feel like i've just come out of a deep sea diving trip or something it is that contrast between the two isn't it you're really you're so absorbed potentially while you're climbing that you're you're not thinking about anything else you're literally looking at that little pebble and wondering what you're going to do with it um, the world shrinks down yeah. to just sort of sense of anxiety that you're trying to control with that pebble and now you're moving and then yeah you're once you're done and you're sat on the ledge yeah the world's really big again yeah I love those movements I think it's just so enjoyable and strange and wonderful stories are many things aren't they living out that vicarious fantasy is a big part of enjoying them at the International Festival of Mountaineering in 1987, Dave Cook was invited to reflect on the state of climbing writing. He delivered a keynote address that he called Running on Empty, and his key thesis was that climbing writing was becoming narrow and insular. He argued that climbing writing should place itself in the wider world, understanding the mountains as an ecosystem, not just a playground, and delving deeper into the way that culture influences objectives. He wasn't arguing against what already existed, but arguing to break the cycle. Stories feed stories feed stories. But what we don't always appreciate is that those stories also feed climbing. They feed what it is, what it should be, what defines success and failure, what it means to be a villain or a hero. 
Dave Cook's argument is towards more voices, more stories, more context and more awareness. Of course, refocusing away from the internal experience of the climber brings its own problems too. Probably, I think there's a certain arrogance to the way I'd write about mountains. Really, it's part of the same thing. It's this, yeah, it's this sort of myth of the pure mountain or the idea that, that we're, we're trying to get close to some sort of pure experience that transcends us. And that the more we make it about the mountain, the 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 more worthy it is somehow because, because you're trying to escape yourself in mountains or you're trying to... And I, I think maybe when I started going into the hills and when I started certainly trying to write about that I I kind of I was aspiring to that idea of the mountain and the landscape being the center of everything and because I felt that was more yeah that and, and that the, that that's the heroism of writing about it I suppose that you're putting the mountain first and I remember finding that hard because I was like well there's all these people who've done that so well who've written about these landscapes so brilliantly what new thing can I say about it and actually the more I've written about it and the more I've um you know changed my ideas I suppose now to me what is interesting is 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 not the idea of the kind of the mountain um itself always but those 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 conflicts that it brings up and the the yeah the fact that there is always personal ambition and there is always stuff that stops you and background stories and selfishness and 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 risk and all that kind of stuff one of the most inspiring books about the outdoors for me is the living mountain by nan shepherd where she writes so beautifully about the Cairngorms. Yeah, it's quite esoteric and some people don't like it for that reason and and that's absolutely fine. You know, everyone has different interests. But for me, what I love about that book is the way she writes so beautifully about such a big and strange place and she brings this real vast landscape to life in real detail and... And she uses, she writes really well about her body and, and putting her body into strange positions in the landscape. So she'll write about looking through her legs. So she sees the world upside down and how completely different everything looks through that or or lying on warm rock or falling asleep on the hill. And, and those really detailed and strange embodied ways of being in the landscape, I find fascinating and interesting and weird and strange but also I can really relate to it through my own climbing and and the ways that we're climbing you do put yourself in some very weird positions in the landscape where you know you'll be hanging like in gripstone you'll have your forearm hanging inside this green slimy crack and you're hoping that it'll hold you or you're squeezing yourself through a ridiculous hole and and trying to get up through there and yeah I really like the way that that climbing helps you to get to know places in yeah such a immersive way but then you move from those really intricate details to say you're then on on your belay ledge whether that's a multi-pitch and you're halfway up the route or you're sat at the top and suddenly you've got that enormous view opening out before you and you've gone from 
staring at a rock that's maybe 20 centimetres from your face to like you might be, say, at Stanage looking out right across the moorland and seeing the edge stretching out and all the other people climbing far away and cloud passing over Kinder Scout or the cement works in Hope Valley. Yeah, it's it's that both kind of movements between what's near and what's far away and and your like really intense personal physical visceral experience on the rock to then suddenly having those moments where you can breathe and take in everything else and and hear the curlews calling. Hmm. I was thinking while we were talking earlier that I've sometimes feel um quite sort of small in the world quite insignificant in the the big grand scheme of of the world but when i'm climbing i feel small in a in a much more empowering way like you you can be sat looking at that landscape and you feel like you're this tiny insignificant thing in the landscape but actually um it's quite powerful in a way that it's sort of not in societal life i guess yeah i think there's just such a sense of such a reassuring sense of agency with climbing, you know, where you're really, you're working with the stuff that's there and there's, and you can't bring anything else to the rock. You know, you bring what you've got that day, which is however strong you're feeling, however much gear you packed or didn't pack and, and you know, whatever your partner is going to give you in terms of support. And so, yeah, you're just there meeting it in that moment and and seeing what will come out of it. In many ways, the stories we tell are broader now. There are more faces, more perspectives, and that gender balance is changing. There's also a temptation sometimes to imagine that social media is storytelling. Sometimes it is, but it's rare, however much branding agencies might tell you differently. There's not much nuance, there's not a lot of depth to it. It's more subject to fashion and evolution. Sometimes in good ways, but not always. And all too often, it's not authentic. And that's what we're really getting at here. How do we evolve authentic stories? All stories are subjective. They all describe an incomplete reality. That's what storytelling is. Highlighting connections, noticing the profound, the funny and the weird. And of course, subjectivity can be good. With context. Maybe part of the tension with that is that because it's climbing and climbing historically is there's so much emphasis on authenticity and truth, you know, the, the those ethics that you cannot lie about what you're doing. And so um, that sense of the way that social media helps people to curate their lives and present a very, you know, creative particular image of who they are. I guess that can be in a bit of tension with that real stress on authenticity. I had a really strange experience of that media stuff when um, quite a few years ago now, I went to Switzerland as part of a, a bizarre and amazing trip. It was partly uh, sponsored by Thomas Cook, um, who are no longer, aren't they? Um, but um, it was to celebrate the anniversary of, um, I think it was 100 years since the first Thomas Cook guided 
trip in Switzerland and it was celebrating the life of a young woman from Yorkshire called Jemima Morrell who had done this amazing trek through the mountains basically like amazing for a, a, a woman like her at that time especially and she was walking in crinolines and doing these doing very long hard days through the mountains and I was on this trip recreating her journey and writing about it because she kept this amazing journal and I I signed up for that because because I love being in mountains and writing about them and I thought but actually when it came to the trip I hope it's okay to say this but it was a wonderful trip it was absolutely wonderful but I had to fight a little bit to to actually get into the hills because a lot of it was about documenting it of course because that's what media coverage of any kind is 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 about it's about um it's about the narrative it's about the story and how you represent it and sometimes representing it can then become more important than doing it and I guess that's the age that we live in so I just remember this one day where I just uh, we were doing a photo shoot in in these um, hot springs um, in in I think it was in Loikabad, and they they were great because they just let me. I, I I just wanted to. We were meant to go up to the top of this um, mountain by cable car and then do some more pictures at the top. And I, and I just said, I think Miss Jemima, who was the woman who I was following in the footsteps of, would have wanted if she was here now, she would have got out of the the hot springs put her stuff on and and walked up the mountain instead so would you mind if I walk up it and I'll meet you at the top and I'll just I I, I want to I want to go on foot instead and they let me and I just but but it kind of wasn't part of the plan and so uh, I got interested in that idea of you know because this was a trip in mountains and and but where is the mountain in the trip and how do you um how do you put that at the center of it and not our impressions and our images of ourselves in mountains, if that makes sense. Helen's description of her ordeal in Greenland at the start of this episode intrigued me for a few reasons. I recognise that sense of awe and feeling overwhelmed in the hills. Sometimes I feel a sense of ownership over the places I climb. But there are places where I feel like a trespasser. That wasn't the full story from Helen, though. That vast and seemingly timeless landscape is forever changing. Some of those changes are dramatic. Some of them are much smaller. But they can still affect the way you think about it. I've got this really vivid memory of leaving some um, food supplies sort of under, hidden under a particularly distinctive boulder, like so that the Arctic foxes couldn't get anything but but that it, we knew where it was and then coming back and trying to find it me like oh that's really weird and it was because it had moved so far because of the the carving like every the glacier had moved and so this boulder wasn't where you expected it to be it was sort of um and just that sense of yeah that you're in a landscape that's on the move all the time what a good story is can seem to be an immovable object but it does move I guess the reason I care is that I get the same sense of the profound from a good story that I do when I'm climbing. A good story, like a good adventure, needs boundaries. And boundaries can be pushed. It needs expectation, but it also needs surprise and novelty. 
So where do we go from here? I think that's one of the things as well that I'd love to see more of in climbing narrative is, is some of that sense of, you know, the ridiculousness of climbing and how silly and funny and strange it is. Like, you know, how, how you can feel like you're dressing up in really weird outfits and getting yourself into very strange positions, getting stuck in ridiculous holes and... Yeah, I think in my writing about climbing, hopefully I spend enough time ridiculing myself that, um, that other people won't take too much offence. I just, I, I suppose, this is a bit of a wishy-washy thing to say, but surely just the more stories we have, the better. And ideally, it should be the case that those new stories don't have to be threatening to old stories, because I think that's the danger, isn't it? If you if you start telling different, giving different accounts, different experiences, people are like, well, that's not really a climbing book, or that's not really an impressive story. You know, I, I, just just because I've been talking, for instance, about those like epic narratives that I grew up with like the white spire and those those quite what I'd consider to be classic mountaineering narratives that were mostly about men doesn't mean I value them any any less or think that they're any they're still my favorite books um I, I just I just I want to be able to read those um and reread those and get lost in them but I want there to be I want there to be different stories as well It's a temptation in lots of parts of life to think that the way things are is somehow the way they're meant to be. But it's not true. You can find more of Helen and Anna's writing on their websites. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening. Listening.